So she had an MRI and we came out of that appointment where she was feeling like, man, that doctor, he was great, but he just kind of left everything up to me to decide. And, and he didn't really give me any definitive, you know, here's your next step. Here's what you need to do to, to do something about this back pain. This is going to help your leg pain. And, you know, here's the next steps. And I said, mom, you know, I, one, I think there's further testing that needs to happen, but two, he's not going to tell you, you need to do X, Y, and Z because there isn't probably an answer for that's that definitive. Um, and I, so I think the culture has changed a little bit. And I think you see that reflective in the notes using this type of term, terminology. And people who are used to your doctor just saying, you need to do this, this, and this, see that uncertainty. And all of a sudden they're second guessing a lot of things about their relationship with their, their doctor or the healthcare system. Hello and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, at www.KevinBJohnsonMD.net on the web. In this episode of Informatics in the Round, you know, I wish I could shorten that to like IIR or in the round or something, but anyway. In this episode of Informatics in the Round, we get some follow-up information. A few episodes back, Dr. Trent Rosenblum at Vanderbilt led a discussion about impending changes and a lot of national concern about a statutory response to a thing called information blocking that has resulted in patients having immediate access to clinical encounter summaries as well as lab results. We were all wrapped in anticipation of the fallout from this impending change and have frankly been eagerly awaiting hearing from a patient and from Trent. So here we are, digging into the aftermath, nuclear option or tempest in a teapot? Let's find out. So we're joined in this episode by some of the same people, but also a new guest. Trent is professor of biomedical informatics, nursing, medicine, and pediatrics. Yes, he is an overachiever. He directs the Vanderbilt Patient Portal, known as My Health at Vanderbilt, My Health for short. He's also an avid runner with his own marathon. I kid you not. I'll include a link to the marathon called the Flying Monkey Marathon in the notes. Sarah Bland is a regular guest on this podcast. By day, she's a senior project manager and very active in the space called Precision Medicine and an all-around funny person. But as you've seen in other episodes, she has layers, and we'll discuss a few of those today. She's also at Vanderbilt. We were able to get a friend of Trent's, a geek, and a musician, all in one, in the form of a guy named Carl Kersey. Carl's band, Dune the Bray, D-O-O-N-T-H-E, B as in boy, R-A-Y, represents yet another form of music in Music City. And then there's Carl. He's low-key with a wonderful dry wit and asks the hard questions. Trent didn't disappoint. He knows his stuff, and he had great information to share, both in response to questions we asked during the episode and questions other listeners will undoubtedly be asking. Hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope it resonates with a bunch of you.
Everybody was. That's, that's why I did it. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we start? So that everybody can know who it is who's speaking. Okay, Trent, who are you? Hi, I'm Trent Rosenblum. I'm an internist and pediatrician at Vanderbilt, and I direct our patient portal, which is called My Health at Vanderbilt. And you've been on this podcast how many times before? This is my second time on the podcast, but I've listened to it many more times than that. Thank you very much. Sarah, who are you? I am Sarah Bland. I'm a senior project manager in the Department of Biomedical Informatics. Uh, and I love my health at Vanderbilt. Yes. <laughs> no leading the witness or anything like that. <laughs> Not well, one bit. Yeah, right. Well, I think everybody knows me. So Carl, tell us about you. All right, I'm Carl Kersey. Uh, in my background, I'm an electrical engineer that I focus on uh, critical power infrastructure, uh, which includes hospitals, but also data centers and, and other types of installations. So, you know, we always make sure that we have somebody who's involved with the music industry. And I hear you're a little bit involved with the music industry. At least this song would suggest that. So tell us about what kind of music you do and what this is. Uh, well, I've been involved with music for a long time. I did take a stint working for Gibson Guitar, so I was involved professionally and I've played professionally for a lot of years. What you're listening to right now is uh, a portion of my band, which is called Dune the Bray, and we do traditional, or mostly traditional, Irish and Scottish music, so you're hearing a bit of some Irish jigs, I believe. I feel like this is like a Geico commercial I'm supposed to be dancing to or something. <laughs> Isn't it Geico that does the one with the people upstairs clogging? Uh, I don't know. No, they have the get-go. <laughs> oh, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that German? Haven't you just like... Yeah, Kevin. I'm not going to say racist, but I mean, come on, Kevin. Well, it's impossible that... There, there is some crossover, you know, there's, there's some, there's German polkas, and then polkas uh, wind up in a lot of different traditions, uh, Irish included, so uh, that's understandable. Okay, we'll give them a pass. Oh, thank you, thank you. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, the band's been together for a couple of years. Uh, we just recently played at the Middle Tennessee Highland Games, uh, which was oh, a couple awesome. week, a couple weekends ago at uh, Percy Warner Park. Uh, but I've been playing traditional Irish and Scottish music for probably 15 years. And before that, you know, uh, bluegrass and country and, and jam band and hard rock and <laughs> you name it. I have lots of instruments. Now, are there a lot of opportunities to play other than at the Highland Games here? Oh, there's a pretty robust uh, kind of Irish uh, community around here. You know, you have McNamara's uh, Irish pub over in Donaldson. You have yep. McCreary's down in Franklin. Uh, there's a there's a music school out in Pegram that some people don't know about called the Fiddle and Pick, where they provide uh, instruction and the opportunity to gather. I was out there earlier this week for an Irish session. So uh, a session is where we get together and play just for the musicians as opposed to uh, a performance, you know, right. which is a little bit different. Yeah. Do the, do the musicians, when you do that, since, since, you know, part of our title is In the Round, which is based on sort of the typical country music way of playing, do do the musicians who are in the audience bring instruments and play along or do they in some other way participate? Well, a session, uh, especially in the Irish tradition, is very participatory. You're in encouraged and it's to nurture that kind of tradition, the Irish tradition. So if you're if you're familiar with like a guitar pull or like in the round with with country, you're going to go around and each songwriter is going to perf perform something. 
Whereas with, with an Irish session, it's generally about all coming together and playing at the same time. Whereas in Irish music, the melody is, is sacrosanct. You know, it's like you could just have a room full of fiddlers playing melodies and that would be a perfectly great session. But it could also include uh, mandolin, which is my main instrument, uh, tenor banjo, uh, the bowron, which is the Irish frame drum. There's the illin pipes, which are the Irish pipes. Right. Um, so there's a lot of different instruments, whistles and things like that. Uh, certainly the pipes are a very traditional Irish instrument, but also the fiddle is, is very predominant in Irish and Scottish music. Uh, the mandolin's a little bit more of a latecomer, but that's, uh, that's kind of was my entry point. Well, I have to tell you, the other Irish instrument that I'm very familiar with is the set of instruments that people use to repair stucco on your house. Um, in Philadelphia, most of the stucco repair community is Irish, and we're, we oh, have wow. a house in Philadelphia, and they're all playing it. So I'm going to shout out to Benny Russell, who's been doing our house right now and is amazing. Um, and maybe, maybe now that Benny knows I can like speak the language of sessions, you know, he'll give me a discount. Oh, maybe, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole etiquette around sessions, but it's uh, in general, it's very inclusive. And you're trying to to nurture that that love of Irish music and give people an opportunity and a, and a place to play and share that. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you. Sarah, have you actually participated in or heard a session before? Uh, so I actually have. Yes. Uh, I am also a mandolin player, but uh, definitely not as good as uh, you probably are. Uh, my bread and butter is guitar. But um, I lived uh, outside of Savannah, Georgia for about five years. And Savannah has a huge Irish population. So um, I often found myself um, hanging out with other musicians and going into like garages or sitting outside Jeez. and having a big just jam sesh. Uh, and it was always great when like other mandolin players or fiddlers showed up and everything. It wasn't just guitar. So yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see. There we go. There it is. He's showing it. Wait, yes. wait, let me get a picture. Leave it up there. Wait, everybody oh, smile. Well, Hold it. Wait, and got it. But that's, yeah. a, that's a 1910 uh, Gibson. Nice. Yeah. It's a bit of a, they call it, we call it uh, MAS, which is mandolin acquisition syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a related one called, uh, called gas, which is guitar acquisition syndrome. And I think I've, I think I'm afflicted with that as well. Carl, how many do you have? Oh, I don't know. I've lost count. Uh, I've probably got up towards a uh, hundred different types of instruments. Wow. But that could be fiddles, banjos, mandolins, whistles, uh, ukuleles, even, you know, guitars, whatnot. Now, do you play the gitulele too? The gitulele? It's the guitar ukulele, the smaller guitar ukulele. Have you seen this? I play ukulele, uh, or the ukulele is the way that, you know, they like to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there's different uh, ukuleles. There's the soprano, and then there's a tenor, and then a baritone. So they're slightly different sized. Um, and that's that's another whole different kind of thing. And I've taught some people to play ukulele. That's not usually my. Uh, I mean, I, I love it, and and I own several, but it's not my. It's, I, I keep coming back to the the Irish traditional music. I've been told that there is this other instrument called a gitulele. Oh, really? Which is some kind of a hybrid between a guitar and a ukulele. Hmm. So I'll have to check and see. If, I'll have to do some fact checking. I know I have a friend who plays one. Um, she's quite good. Maybe it's really what she's got as an alto ukulele. Google just... tells me, Kevin, that you are correct. There it is. Okay. Well, I'll have to learn about that because uh, 
like I said, I'm more familiar with the traditional, the ukulele, ukulele family. He's getting 101. <laughs> I feel like there's 101 coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that is a great uh, entry point for, for anybody that's wanting to play an instrument. Uh, ukulele is, they're very affordable. They have nylon strings, so they're not quite as uh, painful as a steel stringed instrument. Uh, and there's a lot of great resources out there. So yeah, that's a, that's a great entry point. Uh, it's very enjoyable. Well, it's not just an entry point. I mean, sometimes, you know, people, yeah. I've taught people where they just love you, ukulele and then that's all they want to do. They don't want to play guitar after that. Wow. Hey, so Trent, how do you know Carlin? Do you play an instrument that I don't know about? I do not play an instrument. I'm, I am terrible musically when it comes to production. I do enjoy listening. Oh, there um, you go. Carl and I run together. And when we can't run, we walk together or hike together. Sometimes we do it locally and sometimes we travel. Just uh, almost two weeks ago, we traveled halfway across Tennessee to Frozen Head State Park, where we then hiked about 15 miles in the pouring rain, which we loved. Oh, in support of a race out there. And actually, that's where the picture behind me Oh, comes from this is dusk on a ridge on the Cumberland Trail above Bird Mountain, yeah. adjacent to Frozen Head State Park. It's beautiful, nice blue tints. I'm sure. Yeah, wow. So, I wish I could come up with the right segue to go from this conversation <laughs> to, to, to the conversation we're about to have. So, I'm just going to use that as my transition, Carl. We've actually had a conversation. Um, about, I don't know, a couple of months ago, you were not a part of, but we were excited to bring you into this one because Trent's been leading one of the major informatics efforts right now in the country, which is giving patients access to their notes as a part of a federal regulation called 21st Century Cures. And at the time that Trent was talking about this, there was, there was real um, skepticism about whether patients really wanted this whether providers could handle the backlash because sometimes providers say things in their notes that they don't necessarily want patients to see or that patients don't understand, um, et cetera. So I guess I'm going to start by saying, have you had any experience with the healthcare system where... Well, I mean, I think part of the segue here is that I've heard a bit about this from out walking and running with, with Trent. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. I'm also uh, a patient at, at Vanderbilt. So I do have the, the My Health at Vanderbilt portal. Yes. And, um, but I'm a technologist at heart. Yeah. So I generally want, I would prefer to have more information and have that available. Now I understand, and I'm sure we're going to get into some of the pros and cons, but I understand that, that some things come with context, but, uh, I guess my, my first uh, response to this type of access would be that I would be, I would be for it, but I would also understand some of the caveats. Well, one of my lessons in the last episode was um, one, of the, one of the people that we had, a friend of ours named Will, who was on the episode, who has just gone through a very difficult bout with cancer, talked about the fact that for a while, it was anxiety producing for him to see these notifications that there was more information in the portal, and he felt compelled to look at it. But after a while, he started realizing that if he trusts his healthcare team, he would, he would know that it's there and just wait until they ca called him to talk about it. He didn't need to see it first. And I had just gone through a terrible experience with my husband where I was brought to tears with the complete loss of control associated with getting all these notifications and two in the morning 
and knowing there was nothing I could do until the morning. And so Will was the one who said to me, you know, you have a choice. So you can turn off the notifications, in which case the information's there. And if you want it, you know, it's there where you can sit there and be kind of this information voyeur and realize that you are likely not going to be able to be in control of the information that you that you receive. So I think like you, I was a big fan of, of having the information. Sarah, I can't remember where, where were you on this? I, I think I'm more in the camp of, of waiting to know. Um, so I uh, yesterday went to a doctor's appointment with my mom. Um, she had an MRI and she wanted to get the results from her doctors. So they could talk about it. Um, and she actually had printed out uh, her My Health at Vanderbilt um, information so that she could take it with her. And she was like, I'm glad we're going because I don't understand anything from this result, even though I was you know, a nurse for 30 some years when she just <laughs> retired. Yeah. She's like, this, this is gobbledygook to me. So um, I just thought I appreciated that she had it, but she also was expecting that a doctor was going to talk to her about it and take, think about next steps. Think about what's, you know, what's the best approach for dealing with this information. Um, so I was glad she had it, but also glad that she wasn't trying to go and, and play Dr. Google with it either. Um, mm -hmm. I can see though, one thing that I've thought about since our last conversation is that with COVID, a lot of people are coming out of the hospital with a lot of memory loss, essentially, because they haven't really remembered everything that's happened to them being in the hospital with COVID. Yep. And so they are able to go in and say, what happened to me a week ago? You know, I, I don't really remember. It was, you know, a lot of fog. So let me think about what, what took place in the past week while I was in the hospital or something like that, especially when you don't have family with you. Right. Um, so it might be really helpful for cases like that, where you just need kind of a memory jog and you want to know what took place throughout your entire stay. Um, you know, when you were in the hospital. That's a really good point. Plus, I think, as you said, so many of us who had relatives who were admitted to the hospital with COVID, especially in the early part of the pandemic, you couldn't go with them. So it was the only way you'd really know was between phone calls and, and what was showing up. But back then, we didn't have open notes. So you wouldn't know until they got discharged. Well, I think one thing that you, you mentioned uh, when you first introed this is that you were talking about, you know, you could turn off the notifications. And I think in the, in the larger scope of things, that's something we have to deal with every single day with almost everything on our phones. You know, do you yeah. want, like you said, do you want to be an information voyeur or do you want to like, do you control that? But I do see that, you know, and, and I'm not a young person, but I grew up with technology. So I'm comfortable with controlling how that, you know, comes into my view. Whereas I'm sure that there's some folks uh, that are, that are maybe older are less experienced with that type of interaction. So maybe they don't feel like they have any control or it just kind of floods in upon them. And I'm completely capable of controlling it and still don't. I just complain about it all the time. Rob, my, every time I pick up my phone, I'll, you'll see him like, I'll say, um, oh, let me write down that number and I'll turn on my phone and go, oh God. And he's like, what is that? I go, oh, I got a notification about it. And he's like, you know, you could just turn those off. I'm like, yeah, I know I should turn them off. So you're absolutely <laughs> right. Uh, the, the, I'm just, just digging this com conversation. It's man, it it's reliving my past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everyone was terrified. Let me let me just add some color, if I will. When Vanderbilt, I thought I, thought I did that. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> when 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 Vanderbilt went live with open notes, uh, in advance of the April fifth deadline. Mm -hmm. for the 21st Century Cures Act, we 
um, did so by standing on the shoulders of all the organizations that did so before, um, where there's already a body of research that told us these are the things people are afraid of. Right. And then it just doesn't have, it's just fine. Once you go live, everyone's terrified of all these things, but you go live and it's just fine. What was new, new for the entire country, new for the entire world, as far as we know, is that accompanying the open notes, I can log in and look at my note, is open results, meaning every test your healthcare system does on you, the results are immediately available to you, whether you have a notification turned on or not. And there was a whole lot more concern about open results ultimately than open notes. And it too was mostly fine. Most of the things we were worried about were fine. Wasn't straightforward. We did have to tweak a lot of things and we can talk about some of that. And there are some, some things we are still doing to make it better, especially in very specific circumstances, but it was mostly fine. The patients who were engaged enough to look up their results in general could handle them. And those who didn't, didn't look up their results. Um, But that's combined with things like pre-counseling patients, that is having their healthcare providers explain to them, hey, I'm gonna get this test. You're gonna have access to the results immediately. Don't worry, I'm gonna look at the results. I'm gonna contact you if there's anything we need to discuss. Um, And then allowing patients to turn off notifications or we just turn them off wholesale and then patients could choose to opt back into receiving result notifications. So if you get that, you know, that annual cholesterol test back, right. And it's a little abnormal. Okay, fine. Doc's going to call me or nurse practitioner is going to call me and we'll figure out what that means. Um, and the breast biopsy result that comes back. Now I'm not getting the notification. I know the provider is going to contact me and we've had a conversation, hopefully, that tells me that when that result comes back, I don't have to look and I don't get the notification that really, yeah. really tempts me to log in and look. And these things have, have made it even better. So are we hiding the breast biopsy results? It's a great question. The answer is no. We hide or the word is block. This is the word in the law. It's information blocking. We block nothing. We make everything available in the patient portal. The moment it's available in the chart, what we're not doing is calling the patient's attention to it through one of these notifications, unless the patient has specifically asked for a notification by toggling it on in the app. That's so much better. I want to add one other point because some of your listeners might, might say, but gosh, the, off- the Federal Office of the National Coordinator said very explicitly, you don't have to push stuff proactively to the patient portal like we're doing. And they're absolutely right. We don't have to put that breast biopsy in the patient portal until the patient wants to see it. The problem we have is that we have no way in our software for the patient to go log in and say, gosh, I want to see the breast biopsy. 
and then at that moment, automatically go find it and put it in the portal at that point. Second of all, we have no human process to review that request, which is what's part of it. Any delay from when the patient wants it to its availability is also considered information blocking. So if the patient wants to see that breast biopsy at two in the morning and we don't have a human to review that request to make it available instantly, then we are blocking the information from the patient. So the easier way to do it is simply to make it available and then the patient can choose to look at it or not. I mean, I, I understand, you know, the concerns there. Uh, like I said, I, I'm a technologist. I, I, I thrive on data much like uh, I think Trent does from his perspective. If I was concerned about something and it was already in my portal before I looked at it, I think I would reach out to my medical team, you know, and, and ask for them to look at it with me if I was, you know, but I would rather have it than not. You know, everybody's got an opinions about things. And no, um, no. my and wife I think will tell people, you, I definitely have issues. <laughs> um, you know, but I'm surrounded, it seems like by a lot of uh, medical professionals. Uh, so you know, um, so I understand, I guess, more of that perspective and, uh, but I could see where people that are, uh, that are more apprehensive about their health. I'm somebody that's always tried to, you know, be proactive in my, in my health and working with my medical, uh, professionals and things like that. So I, I, I tend to like the availability of information. You know, if I go get a, a blood test and, and I can see my cholesterol numbers, you know, almost instantaneously, then I like that. And then if I have questions, I just go on a run with Trent and then I ask him about it. <laughs> there you go. My, my that's running cool. friend, the doctor. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I have to say that Trent is, you know, I, I would never presume that, but Trent has always been, been welcome to helping not just myself, but other people that had medical questions. He's quite, uh, he's enlightened a lot of people in my presence in that respect. Well, good for you. I, I was actually out running with Carl, Kevin, when you called me about uh, Rob's medical stuff. Oh, is that right? We were finishing um, a run or maybe it was a hike over at Beeman Park up in North Nashville. Mm. And, um, and I had, I stepped away. So you and I would have some privacy and I think Carl was enjoying some, um, some recovery beverage. There you go. Um, and uh, we had that conversation. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I wonder if, um, this has changed how providers write notes at this point or, or their timing of delivering results. Has it changed provider behavior? That's a big question. It shouldn't. Any workaround to cause the result to come into the electronic health record more slowly so the provider has a chance to review it before it's in the EHR and then in the patient portal constitutes information blocking. Um, It's also something that is aggressively against the spirit of what the law is trying to do. And I feel very strongly about it. I'm actually investigating such a situation that happened to yours truly, I had a test result that I was almost certain would come back that day. And two days later, it appeared simultaneously in the EHR and the patient portal. Mm. And I received a message from my healthcare provider, which makes me concerned that the um, testing facility withheld delivery 
delivering that result to the EHR until they could close the loop with the provider. Wow. Which again is um, completely contrary to the spirit of the law. Um, so we're actually investigating that this week. The, the, the timing is great. Your other question, did, do providers change their notes? Open Notes is an organization that helps health systems share notes. They've been doing it for over a decade. They have a huge information uh, research uh, foundation behind the recommendations they give. Um, they were very helpful in Vanderbilt's adopting open notes as part of accommodating this new law. Um, and they have always recommended, aside from avoiding certain words, that providers not change how they write their notes, recognizing that notes are written by providers for providers. Well, and also the billing and the lawyers and the researchers, all of whom are already reusing chart information, but primarily um, your notes are for healthcare delivery. You want to avoid things like the abbreviation for shortness of breath these days, because it's easier for the patient <laughs> to read their note, but patients have always been able to read their notes. And if you use that abbreviation, there was always a risk that the patient would see that. That's a good one. I hadn't thought about that one. I'll bet you there's a bunch. I'll bet you there's there a lot of bunch. Yeah. So, so really interesting. One of the things that I learned when I went to medical school a few years ago was that as part of interviewing a patient, you step aside and say, okay, I've got your story. I've got all your information. Now I'm going to do this thing called the review of systems, where I just ask you every question about every body part you've got. You have chest pain, cough, fever, and just run through the list. And then when I go to write it in my note, I write the patient denies chest pain, cough, or fever. It turns out that the word denies inf is inflammatory to some yeah, patients. Yeah. It makes them feel like I am articulating that I'm in an adversarial relationship with them, that I ask them about this and they, you know, with a humph, yeah, denied yeah. that they have this. So medical students today are being uh, encouraged or coached to write this a different way. Patient does not endorse, which to me sounds very bizarre. That's even worse. <laughs> I understand. To me it is, but apparently that's better. Yeah. The other thing you can do is just put no cough, no food. I like that much better. According Very to the simple. patient, there is no. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, so I had a question for Trent. It's like, because, so you said denies is, it means one thing in, in medical nomenclature. And then, but to the, to the layperson, it may have a different connotation. Would you say that there's a lot of terms like that in, in medical nomenclature that would be misunderstood or, or misinterpreted in, in patient notes? Is there some type of is it, do we need to be talking about a new language for notes so that it communicates more clearly at first glance? I guess that's where we're at, right? Right. Uh, I, there are a handful of words. The words that, that doctors use to write their notes, the words they learn to use by being brought up in this culture and being taught in medical school, the endorses versus denies versus no is a great example of that. When you start off in medical school, you don't know any of these words, and there's a hundred ways you could say heart attack. And so it absolutely does make sense that we could change the language we use and teach it and raise a new generation saying things differently. 
Another approach, this being an informatics conversation, is to tell doctors not to change a thing, but develop tools that help patients read the notes by automatically translating them, not English to Spanish, but medical jargon to non-medical language um, in, a, in a useful way. Yeah, I got to try something here because I've been wanting to do this experiment for a while. So Carl, I say to you, I cannot rule out a heart attack. Do you have one or don't you? I might. <laughs> <laughs> That's just terrible. Only the Catholic. I would lab think can there's a possibility. Okay. If you cannot rule it out, then there's a possibility, right? That's right. There are so many words like that that I thought it would be fun for just a second for us to all try something, which is all of the ways that you can say no without saying no. Yeah, it's highly unlikely. Okay, Trent. Differential diagnosis, number one, pulmonary embolism, number two, pneumonia, number three, myocardial infarction, number four, asthma attack. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Carl, you got one? What Go about patient, patient declines symptoms? Uh, declines having nice. denies, denies, having, denies, denies, denies having symptoms of uh, <laughs> MI. That's a good one. Well, this is the problem, right? Every single one of those things we just said is in somebody's notes someplace. And, and, and so if I say, can't rule it out, does that mean you've ruled it in? Does that mean you don't have it? Or if I say it's unlikely, what does that mean? 5%, 20%, 80%, right? And see, there I we're know. getting into something that's common. That would be more common language. It's not, it's, but it's, it's in a medical context. Whereas right. there could be a term, you know, I think Trent went more with medical terminology, which yep. the layperson might not understand. And they would be more tempted to go to look that up to try to understand it. Whereas if it's just a turn of a phrase that means something in a medical context, yep. but may be interpreted differently by the, the layperson, then I think there's, there's a, uh, the opportunity for misunderstanding or miscommunication. Whereas, I mean, I'm not suggesting to Trent's point that, that all the doctors everywhere have to, you know, we have to come up with this new nomenclature as it were and, and enforce that. But you understand where I, I could see the issue there. I'm going to get a little philosophical right now. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that uh, I keep hearing in this conversation and what I've considered as well is that we have society, we have in society two different cultures um, or mul multiple ones, but this one culture of people who are raised to just believe what their doctor told them and trust their doctor. And then you have another culture who believes what they've read on uh, Google and YouTube, and they think that they know what they're talking about. And then probably other subcultures who don't really care. But there's this belief system that your doctor knows what they're doing, has, can give you something very definitive and tell you to, to go on and be well, eat a apple a day, keeps the doctor away, things like that, where, you know, going back to my mom's doctor appointment yesterday, um, she had an MRI on her back. She's had some, some pain in her leg and the doctor said, and I think it could be your back. So she had an MRI and we came out of that appointment where she was feeling like, man, that doctor, he was great, but he just kind of left everything up to me to decide. And, and he didn't really give me any definitive 
you know, here's your next step. Here's what you need to do to, to do something about this back pain. This is going to help your leg pain. And, you know, here's the next steps. And I said, mom, you know, I, one, I think there's further testing that needs to happen, but two, he's not going to tell you, you need to do X, Y, and Z because there isn't probably an answer for that's that definitive. Um, and I, so I think the culture has changed a little bit. And I think you see that reflective in the notes using this type of term, terminology and people who are used to your doctor just saying, you need to do this, this, and this see that uncertainty. And all of a sudden they're second guessing a lot of things about their relationship with their, their doctor or the healthcare system. Wow. Sarah, there are a couple um, conceptual models that exist about patient engagement. And they almost all are set up in such a way that all the way on one side is the traditional, what we would now call paternalistic model where the doctor, not a nurse practitioner, because it's very old school, the doctor tells you what to do and you do it. Unless you're not adherent, of course. Now I'm commenting. Somewhere along the way, as you move off to the side is patient engagement, where we increasingly give patient information and tools to use that information to participate and partner in their healthcare decision-making. And then you keep going and then you ultimately get this sort of team-based approach where you have a network of people, each of whom brings something to the table. And it includes the primary care provider and the nurse and the nutritionist and the patient who brings power to the table, the power to take the pills, to exercise, the, the family members who help make sure that the patient does those things or helps get the kids to school, which, you know, is a stressor for the patient or goes on a walk with the patient, um, which is really considered a sort of healthcare community, or as I said before, team and also, as you move to the right, it's more and more technology supported or enabled. Most of what we're talking about today is right there in the middle where the patient and maybe a caregiver has more access to the data and is somewhat engaged in, possibly partnered in, uh, being part of the healthcare decision-making and uh, process but not all patients, as not all doctors, not all patients are ready for that. And there are plenty of patients who still want to live in the super paternalistic model. And do you see that that being correlated any way to the information society that we live in? I mean, because there's obviously some people that are more comfortable with researching, not necessarily medical things, but any type of thing and finding a solution. And maybe they'd be more open to the partnership, whereas people that are, you know, I don't want to say technophobes, but more that people that are not as technologically advanced, would they be more in the paternalistic model? I don't think that we could do what we do with using technology to encourage partnership and teaming if we didn't have people readily comfortable with accessing and managing information. We know a lot of people access information and don't do a great job managing it. That's where having the engagement with the healthcare provider and trust, and by the way, information transparency supports trust. Um, and ultimately having a team-based model helps the patient understand the medical knowledge and its impact. And it helps the provider on the other side understand the impact of the disease on the patient's life. 
So in theory, it, it, it builds bidirectional empathy in such a way that it really is helpful. And the research seems to bear this out. You know, the short answer to your question is absolutely the, the information age in which we live really sets the stage for us to be able to do things like this. Yeah, Carl, one of the motivating factors behind 21st century cures and open results and open notes was increasing the trust circle around medical information and thereby empowering innovation. The idea was there are people like you who are technically sophisticated, who go through bad things in healthcare, see problems with the tools we have, and could build a better mousetrap. But we don't give you any data, therefore you don't get to do that. So part of what happened was there was a decision that was made that if we could liberate some of the data, not only would we provide it to the patients, that would be a great thing, but we would also provide it to their grandkids who might be able to build the next fantastic technological breakthrough that enables transformation in healthcare. So I think that's one of the things we hope to see. And that actually brings up this question for Trent, which is, so given, given you know, that we're out, the obvious question is we're all evaluators, we're all researchers. Are there any studies that we're doing locally to try to understand this? We asked 3,000, a little over 3,000 Vanderbilt patients. These are people who are part of what we call Advise Vanderbilt, a, a group of Vanderbilt patients who have agreed to receive surveys periodically about issues that we face as a healthcare institution. And we decided to ask them, you know, we got a thousand responses, almost a 30% response rate, which we thought was pretty good. Um, and what we found was that about 90 plus percent wanted the results immediately. They didn't want to wait. When we asked them, well, did your result distress you? Only 6% said seeing the result electronically caused distress. And um, most of those were in the context of an abnormal result, where if I'm the healthcare provider, I might be more aggressive about following up quickly with the patient. Hmm. About half of the tests that the patients responded about were monitoring existing conditions like maybe your cholesterol or A1C. Your, your A1C and a half were for new questions. Like I come in with a fever and get a white count. Um, and the last study that we've done um, that is in the process of publication is, this was actually led by Brian Stites, one of our junior faculty, former fellow, um, who does just incredible analytic work in the patient engagement technology space. And he looked at over 300,000 results released to the patient portal over almost 18 months. And what he observed was with the change to immediate release, there was a fourfold increase in patients seeing the results before providers. Although that did drop not all the way back to baseline, but most of the way back to baseline once we uh, turned off the automatic notifications. Interestingly, there was also a twofold increase in the number of times a patient, upon looking at the result, sent a message to their healthcare provider. So that's actually, again, not surprising. That's actually a little bit, I would have suspected it to be even been higher than that. So does that and, just mean- you know, Kevin Kevin, you and I once had a conversation about this with the study that was done um, 
by uh, I think Tom Palin looking at the patient portal rollout. Right. This was a JAMA study, and they showed that before versus after uh, rolling out a patient portal, there was a slight persistent increase in patient engagement with the health system, messages, visits, and so forth. And I asked uh, the author, based on the conversation we had, and he confirmed this, as these are people who we want to be engaged. These are people who were maybe not engaged and should have been, their diabetes was out of control, and now they have access to it. And now they're more likely to partner with us to manage that problem. We haven't done a deep dive into what these messages show. We, we are planning to do that. Um, but we anticipate that these are patients we want to be talking to anyway. What do you guys think? I'm not really surprised. Um, I think for me, you know, thinking about just where we are culturally, uh, you know, a lot of people have uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. So the earlier they can get information, the better. Uh, you know, I, I think I responded in your Twitter survey, and I think I was probably like one of the few people that said, you know, I'd wait, it's fine. Just because, you know, I like to put off the bad news as long as possible. But uh, I, I, I do wonder, um, in this, has security ever been discussed or has anyone ever been concerned about like their privacy being invaded or, you know, any kind of ransomware attack with their information being a little bit more in another or in another space rather. All of the information on the portal is secured in the same way we secure our EHR information. What we do at Vanderbilt, as I understand, I'm not the security guy, but what we do at Vanderbilt is above industry standard and regulatory requirements in terms of its security. Kevin probably can speak more about that. So what's in my health at Vanderbilt, unless they like screenshot it or copy paste it and stick it on Facebook is highly secure. The 21st Century Cures Act, however, requires us to trust the patient to do the right thing or to do whatever the heck they wanna do. And if the patient wants to connect my health at Vanderbilt with an API that uses a standard connection, so a secure connection, to deliver the information to an app that maybe ultimately is going to misuse it, Vanderbilt has no opportunity or um, really jurisdiction to advise the patient not to do that. Did you have anybody who said, I don't want you to put this information in the portal, or is it, you know, we we have that notification off, so they're not worried about it. Um, but I wonder if anyone just said, you know, I'm fine with getting some messages or worry about prescription, but I don't want all those results in my EHR or my portal rather. Yeah, we, we've actually gotten that question, I think, once. And the answer is technically we can't do that. Either you have access to the portal or we shut down your portal account. Well, there you go. And, and that person may have shut down their portal account and, you know, we, we are delighted to continue to provide them high quality medical care. So hearing you say all of this makes me think you're playing a good game. But what I want to know from Carl is when you're running with Trent now, has he stopped talking about this or is this still in his mind somehow? Um, I think initially it was quite in the forefront of his mind, but it seems to have, uh, it's, he's, I think he's at peace with it, at least at some level. <laughs> he's moved on to flying monkeys and... Uh... Absolutely. Hey, hey the, the the flying monkey marathon is coming up in just over a month. So that's good. I mean, I was going to say about the cybersecurity piece, because I deal in an industry where we're dealing 
obviously not with medical data, but we're dealing with, with sensitive um, different types of energy and usage data for large, you know, huge clients, many of which you would recognize the names if I mentioned them. And so I think, I think everybody is struggling with the cybersecurity and moving data around securely. It's not something that's just going to be isolated, you know, with, with respect, respect to the healthcare. It's going to be, you know, I think the banks and stuff have probably been at the forefront of that dealing with financial type transactions, yep. but there's all types of sensitive data that you could infer different types of information about a client based on, you know, and I mean, some people would argue that I could look at your energy usage at your house and, and intuit, you know, what you're up to, yep. you know, to some degree. Um, but I, I think the cybersecurity stuff, uh, it's going to be at the forefront from now on because all this is being moved around. And I think one of the things I'd heard Trent say before is that you have the electronic health record system where all this gets stored, I think, internally for Vanderbilt's internal usage. So there's cybersecurity issues there before you even open up a portal that the, the, that the client or the, uh, the patient can sign on to. You have to, because all these machines you know, have their cybersecurity that has to be put in place there. I guess my, my yeah, overarching right. comment was that cybersecurity is going to be a part of every aspect of our life from now forward. You know, yeah. it's not just healthcare. It's not just financial. It can be every aspect. It could be your, you know, your registration for your car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's so. right. And that's, that's what I was getting at um, that we have tremendous, security measures in place to protect our um, our EHR data, our health record data. And the, the patient portal, My Health at Vanderbilt, really subsumes underneath that as part of how that all works. So this brings up a really good point. So I'm sitting in the airport this weekend, and there's a woman sitting right across from me. And as I was sitting there reading my book, I hear her say to her phone, speakerphone on uh yes i'll use american express and then there's a little pause and then i hear three two seven six four four nine oh two eight four blah 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 expiration june 27th uh oh yeah five five two six and i thought well that's all i need I can go anywhere I want now and charge everything <laughs> I want on her card. And I actually had to go over to her and I said, you know, everybody just heard that. Like I would go right now and get rid of that card. That was the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, which I think reminds us some of what we've had to do in healthcare with these portal tools is not necessarily above industry standard, but it's foolproof. Meaning we've put in things that are extra bells and whistles to make sure that patients can't accidentally disclose information they didn't realize they were disclosing. But they can still do things like read their results over the phone. And to your point, we can only cover it so far. Right. And and that's, you know, it's like I, I'm somewhat familiar with what we call in the industry penetration testing, yep. which sounds terrible. It's another one of those, you know, things. Speaking of which, right. <laughs> right. But that's what you it know, means. I just is... want you to know Sarah's never going to unhear that. No, that's what she said. <laughs> but it, that's very common in, in software and also in physical security systems. And sometimes they call it red teaming, you know, where you have an internal team that tries to like break your system, you know, tries to get into your building, tries to, you know, compromise this. But the overarching thing is that the weakest link is always 
the person at the end of the chain. So that's why you get so many things on, on Facebook and other places where they're going, Oh, what was your first model car? What's your favorite color? Blah, blah, blah. That's all to get your social engineering information. So if somebody is, is, you know, is willingly giving away all the social engineering, then that's usually the, the, the easiest way to get in their accounts, not by cracking your 128 bit encryption, you know, on your portal. That's very difficult, but getting somebody to give you their, their password or their dog's name or, you know, their birthday or their anniversary and all this kind of stuff is that's oftentimes more easy. So Trent, was this entire thing a tempest in a teapot? Did it turn out to basically be much ado about nothing or are there other shoes still to drop studies that are going to shock us? Where do you think we're going to go? I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. As I suggested before, this is really a major change in how we deliver results and how we deliver healthcare, how we partner with patients. The good news is with everything else that's been swirling, this turned out to be a lot gentler than we expected. We have plenty of ways in which this has been great. Now, you know, because we're doing this, it makes it really easy culturally as well as technically, for example, to give patients their COVID results positive or negative immediately right? without like thinking about it, which is what our patients want, what our patients need to carry right. on with their lives. There, there are more studies that are ongoing and that need to happen to make sure we understand the impacts, make sure that we're doing this as well as we can, that we are um, understanding potential serendipities and unintended consequences, exactly. that there are ways that we can advise that the law be refined. And there are future stages to the law that will make more and more of this health record information available in the patient portal that's not currently available. So if you could wave your magic wand and fix one of the things that's still broken, what would it be? You mean in the healthcare system or about the Cures Act? About the Cures Act. So <laughs> the, the biggest concern I have had all along and retain is that at the intersection of individual privacy and laws, be they federal laws or state laws for adolescents and software capabilities, we have gone from a system where by and large patients had trouble accessing their information to a system where patients have trouble avoiding their information. And so if I had a magic wand, what I'd like to see are greater controls for patients over what information they do receive, and more importantly, what information then gets shared via the patient portal or whatever API to their care partners. Right That's now, good. the software just generally doesn't let us or the patients have those controls. And so it's very often all or none. Yeah. I just love my help at Vanderbilt. Yay! Stop, stop sucking up to him. <laughs> well, She's going to ask me to do something. I interim too. chair. So, I mean, just trying to, you know. Did you hear about that, Carl? Trent is the new interim chair. For a couple of months, he gets to have the keys to the kingdom in this department. So all you're going to hear about is all of the people, things people whine about regarding space, money, and faculty for promotions and stuff. I wouldn't start walking with him again until January. Well, you know, he... uh he brings good beverages, you know, so, <laughs> but, um, 
No, I've heard that. And I'd have to say that I've been impressed with, uh, in general, with my health at Vanderbilt. Trent, you know, if I have problems with it, Trent hears those. So he gets it the other way. You know, I had some, yep. uh, some slight payment kind of stuff going on there, for uh -oh. a while on it, but it, they fixed it. It was, uh, well, we don't need to go into the details, but, um, <laughs> Well, no, it was just that if you had like, you know, if you had two payments in there, it, you know, it asked you to enter a new payment and then it still went and looked at the old one and told me that I hadn't made my payment. So, but they took care of that. Yeah, um, I, I but, even explained to Carl the technical thing behind it. And Carl, who's an engineer said, I don't care about that. The experience was wrong. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, like I'll a Trent response, by the way. <laughs> well, but my, my role now professionally is what you call customer success management. So with my large clients, I'm responsible for the, for the customer outcomes, uh -huh. you know, and the thing that I have a couple of sayings, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this is that convenience wins. So that's kind of why a lot of things we do now tend towards convenience, whether it's listening to music on our phones or having everything available at our fingertips through our, our portals. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is that I think Trent said that right now, I think, and some of this comes from the, you've had to implement this relatively quick. So exactly. I think you're going to get more control over it as it goes forward. Right, Trent? Yes. In my, with my clients, the customers are, they want to know what the outcome is. They care not one whit about the internal gyrations of my company. And, oh, you know, this department has to talk to this department. Customers don't care. They want what they want. And that's their perspective. And that's valid. You know, because sometimes the internal meanderings and gyrations of large corporations make absolutely no sense. Are there, or they might make sense if you have a long memory, you know, and it's like, oh, well, we did that because we had this other system and we transferred that to this system, you know, but the end result is what the, the patient or in my case, the customer is interested in. And we have to, I think we always have to be mindful of that. I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of people who basically say, I want what I want. I don't actually care why it is that you're giving it to me or how hard it's been, especially in healthcare when, you know, the, the healthcare system is more fragmented than it's ever been. And there are far more pressures on people than there've ever been. So I, I think that's generally right. That the people who more people are going to have wanted this and be happy they've received it, than be upset that we've provided something they never wanted. And that's what we heard from Will. I just don't look at it. Sarah, final thoughts? I think that um, knowledge is power. It's good to, to have more information. And I'm actually happy to, to move uh, patient engagement towards being more integrative where the patient can better understand their own health and participate in, in changing health. And I think that's just one step towards that. I feel like I'm supposed to be singing. Hey, uh, Carl, can you play It's a Wonderful World? What a Wonderful World on your mandolin. Um. Probably not in the short term. And it wouldn't sound very good over Zoom, to be honest with you. So That's I'm okay. Leave... I, I was going to sing it. That would have sounded even worse. <laughs> we'll so work on that. You know, we'll, we'll come back in a different, in a different episode and we'll. Uh, yeah, there we'll you go. Okay. Hope you all enjoy that. Thanks to our guests today, Sarah Bland, Trent Rosenblum, and Carl Kersey. Thanks to each of you. By the way, please tell a friend about the podcast. I'd love to get our listenership over 5,000, and I need your help. If you have suggestions or ideas, hit me up on Twitter at KBJohnsonMD. Or if you think twitting is for twits, email me at Kevin1061 at Comcast.net. I love hearing from you. This is Kevin Johnson signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your day. See ya.
hashtag science communication. I'm living it.